Greetings, everyone. I'm uh, Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Welcome to this online edition of the OHC's Book in Print Talks. Our Book in Print Talks are presented by University of Oregon faculty authors whose work has been supported by the OHC. If you have questions for our presenter at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option at the bottom of the Zoom window. This talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker, Elisa Friedman, Professor of Japanese Literature, Cultural Studies and Gender at the University of Oregon and Editor-in-Chief of the US-Japan Women's Journal. Professor Friedman's books, which are many, include Tokyo in Transit, Japanese Culture on the Rails and the Road from Stanford from 2010, an annotated translation of uh, Kawabata Yasunari's The Scarlet Gang of Asakusa from New California Press, 2006. The she is the co-editor of volumes on Modern Girls on the Go, Gender, Mobility, and Labor in Japan from 2013, and Introducing Japanese Popular Culture from 2017. She's writing a new book on Cold War co-eds, the untold story of Japanese women sponsored by the US military, work supported by a 2019-2020 OHC Faculty Research Fellowship. Professor Friedman is also a member of the OHC's Faculty Advisory Board. Today, Professor Friedman will speak to us about her newest monograph, so newly published, she doesn't even have a copy of it, uh, Japan on American TV, Screaming Samurai Join the Anime Clubs in the Land of the Lost from Columbia, just newly published 2021. Welcome, Elisa. It is wonderful to have you. We're really looking forward to hearing about Japan on American TV. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and thanks to the Oregon Humanities Center. I'm very grateful for all the support that you've given to me. And, and you're such a wonderful group and, and such a pleasure to work with. Thank you all for coming out today. I'm going to share my screen. Um, those of you who know me know that I have a PowerPoint addiction, which I'm weaning myself off of during the pandemic. I'm, I'm learning how to look into the Zoom camera instead of at my PowerPoints. But having said this, we can look at all of the slides or just a few. It's up to you. I'd like this, to, this session to be useful to you all. Um, please let me know if you can see the PowerPoints. Are, are they showing up? Okay, today um, I'm going to introduce a book that just came out on September 21st, 2021. It's so new, I, I haven't held the book yet and I'm, I'm excited to do so. Um, this is a book that, I, that came out of my teaching at the University of Oregon and I thank a lot of students in the acknowledgements. The point of the book is how American television from the 1950s to the present shows an alternative history of American fascinations with and fears of Japan. And I designed this book for four main audiences, students, teachers, scholars, and non-specialists. I know that's a, a lot. Those of you who, and many of you in the audience write books, you know, this is a lot to balance. How I did this, and I don't know if I did it successfully, but how I strove to do this was to beta test the chapters with all of these groups. I gave a lot of academic talks and I taught a lot of the material. In fact, this book comes from my teaching uh, so the cultural exchange between the US and Japan. 
And in fact, if you notice the book cover, this was designed by my student, William Bowles. Will was in my Zoom class during the pandemic in 2020, and Will was a doodler to keep focused. And since he was drawing during my classes, I asked him to design my book cover. So I shout out to Will for his excellent work. So today, as I said, I'll talk for about 40 minutes and sort of show a panorama of what I'm doing, striving to do in this book. And then I'd love to hear from you. And please react if there's anything, it's Zoom, as you know, is a weird world where I feel like I'm talking to myself and, and to screen. So please, if there's any time if you have any questions or, or comments, and I'll try my best not to spoil the television programs that I discuss. And in fact, I, in designing this book, I include TV watch lists that I suggest that readers watch first before they read the book so that you don't um, inadvertently see the ending to something. Uh, and also I include discussion questions and other teaching materials. So um, I, not that you have to read my work and thank you Paul for the kind introduction. I just want to give another shout out to the Oregon Humanities Center for um, my, all my projects and a project I'm working on in Cold War co-eds, which has been inspired by Japanese women who studied at the University of Oregon. So uh, my book came out of questions that we were exploring in class like um, when we stop and think about images of Japan on American television, what can we learn about both countries? Should we take easily consumable television meant for entertainment seriously? Does doing so ruin the fun of watching them? So in the book, I start with, with Hanna-Barbera cartoons, some of the first American television programs. And we look on through to Netflix in 2019, 2020 about how US television programs have taken the role of curators. By this, I mean selecting and displaying aspects of Japan for a mainstream audience. And belief in American superiority over Japan underpins this whole curation process. And American television, like that of other countries, is premised on the belief, I argue, that that country's belief system and behaviors are the right ones, even when they poke fun at them. So TV tends to react to things in the public eye and perpetuate uh, dominant discourses. Like for example, a television program can't be as controversial as a novel or a painting because television relies on sponsors and uh, mass audiences state control over networks. I know this is a super wordy slide and this will be my most wordy of the slides, but um, this is sort of a, a summary of the book. And I tried to write the book to be under, it came out to be about 202 pages. The first draft was about 500 pages and I kept reining and reining it back to make it teachable. But I break these sort of, look at a history of television through um, common characters. And the theme of the book is parodies more than serious programs. How does making fun of Japan reflect American fears and fascinations of Japan? And um, I'll go through some of these categories. Like in the title is a very weird title, Screaming Samurai Join Anime Clubs in the Land of the Lost because one of the categories is we'll talk about is Screaming Samurai. And Japan has always been portrayed on American television as an impenetrable, wacky, weird, strange place that Americans can't understand. And I'm borrowing the title of the television program, Land of the Lost. So more than um, presenting a catalog of stereotypes, I examine how television is, uh, programs are um, created in a nexus of discourses. What I mean is how television reflects what um, is being discussed in the mainstream media, certain stereotypes that we see through other films, other television programs, through novels. And also what I found is the most progressive change has been the diversification 
of Japanese characters and their acceptance on American television. So um, again, I'm not trying to show how television shows what's wrong, but instead I'm trying to model um, how to use area studies, in, in my case, Japanese studies, Asian studies, to help us understand, and this is something that I think is, is especially important, I know you all agree right now, how to unpack media images that we see, how to read sort of the semiotic mythologies behind how images are constructed. So my goals at this book, I'm trying to provide a way to approach, a gentle way to approach difficult issues like racism, cultural essentialism, cultural appropriation, um, through looking at national branding, through looking at mainstream television comedies. I asked the question, can American media have fun with Japanese culture or other national cultures without advancing racist and sexist tropes or beliefs in American exceptionalism? So let's get to some examples. Um, again, the book examines parody and you all know parody. Parody is when you exaggerate an individual or in this case, a country or a traits place for comedy or ridicule. Like you look at this image of Godzilla from the Simpsons go to Japan in 1999. And you're, the part of the joke is knowing who Godzilla is. If, if you didn't know Godzilla, this image wouldn't be as fun. But parody also renders possible competitors less powerful by exaggerating their characteristics and make them laughable. Like on South Park, if you depict the Japanese emperor's laughable, it seems Japan, the political figures seem less scary. Again, I'm not gonna read all the words on these slides, but I can bring any of these slides back in the Q and A. Um, when I talk on Zoom, I tend to over-prepare. Just, I get nervous and I worry I'll run. This gives me a clue of what to say. So dealing with parody, American television series extend the definition of parody to include hegemony or the power dynamics underneath parody. What I mean by this is I've constantly seen and I've watched, my brain is so full of South Park right now. I've watched so many television programs that keep portraying Japan and Japanese culture, Japanese people as incomprehensible, non-threatening, adorable, small. And most of these skits, sketches and stories involve American characters interacting with Japanese and trying to make sense of Japanese culture, even while misinterpreting it through its audience. So as we see here in this image from King of the Hill, we see iconic images of Japanese homes, Torii gates, Mount Fuji, all these wouldn't appear in the same street in Japan, but they're thrown together because they make Japan look instantly recognizable to viewers. But what really percolates underneath are some historical memories. So these programs are not so innocent. Um, we may laugh, but they risk offensively othering international cultures and dredging up some historical memories. So would you like to look at some examples? I asked the Zoom audience. Um, I apologize in advance for some of these racist and offensive images, but I think they're important to look at. Um, as one of uh, the blurbists on the back of the book wrote, one of my colleagues wrote, and, and this is a compliment on the book, that it makes you chuckle, it makes you think, and it makes you cringe. And, and that's sort of my goals in, in this volume. But what I look at in the first chapter, and this is a scene from the Flintstones in 1960, and you notice this character called Professor Rakimoto. And Professor Rakimoto was one of the first characters, international characters to appear on the Flintstones. Do you all know the Flintstones? The Flintstones, uh, you can all turn on your mics if, if that would be helpful. Thank you for the thumbs up. The Flintstones were the, was the first animated sitcom for adults, the first cartoon to air in color on American television. 
And the first, uh, the first international character on the Flintstones was a Japanese character. So in the first chapter, I keep looking at all of these sort of what I call judo jacks, borrowing the name of the character pictured to the left from Pixie, Dixie, and Mr. Jinx, combining the stereotype of the racist Japanese wartime stereotype of man, Japanese men being small, wearing round rimmed glasses with buck teeth, pig noses, doing sort of language slurs, very sorry, please. But they borrow the stereotype in 1950s media cartoons aimed at children on television. And, and they combine it with the 1950s fad for martial arts. So in chapter one, I look at the persistence of these stereotypes from World War II propaganda and how they became a television trope in children's cartoons. And children in the 1950s are growing up in this media scape that's promoting Japan as America's ally um, after the war, especially during the Cold War and the rise of communism in Asia. Notably, these same Hanna-Barbera cartoons were the, some of the, immersed, the first American television programs to air in Japan. Again, I show this slide to students and we actually watched some of these offensive wartime cartoons like Disney in, uh, became part of the army effort, Warner Brothers, creating these really racist cartoons to encourage American audiences to hate, uh, hate Japan, feel negatively toward Japan and Germany. But you see these same, same faces, these same uh, images keep coming up, but meshed with the judo instructor on cartoons like the Flintstones. And in the Flintstones, it's an interesting back and forth because Fred Flintstone, if you've watched the program, he's, he's the patriarch of a working class family. And he's paired with Professor Rakimoto, who's also out to make money. And the two of them sort of face off literally. And Fred Flintstone says to Professor Rakimoto, he greets him saying sukiyaki, which was one of the only words that Americans knew of Japanese language in 1960, along with geisha and Mount Fuji. So you can see how this television program is reacting to sort of public images of Japan. So I don't wanna to dwell too much. I wanna save time for questions, but if I'm not making sense, please stop me. But we see this kind of yellow face come up in television a lot through the 1960s. Has anyone seen the Gilligan's Island program where Vito Scotti, the American actor, plays um, a Japanese soldier that's been stranded on an island who doesn't realize the war has been ended? It's a very offensive stereotype that appeared in two programs of Gilligan's Island. Also in the um, film Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, now we don't have, we're more aware of diversity and, and other issues. But in the 1960s, we could see how television's a measure of how far we've come in, in assessing multiculturalism. In the chapter two, has anyone seen the John Belushi Samurai Futaba skits from Saturday Night Live from the 70s? If you haven't, here's your weekend viewing. Um, Yes, they're offensive, but John Belushi's doing them in homage to the Japanese actor Mifune, who starred in about 16 Kurosawa films, maybe not many, I need to check the number, but I know there were 16 Samurai Futaba skits on Saturday Night Live. What these skits are doing, John Belushi, as you see here in the first film, and also um, Richard Pryor, they're both dressed as Japanese samurai. In kimono, John Belushi pulls his hair back in a ponytail. Samurai Futaba is a Japanese samurai who's working various jobs in New York City. And he is do not doing Japanese jobs, but he's working in jobs common to working class American men. Um, and he communicates with his American customers. And it's a lot of slapstick humor. But this is combining, the, I argue in this chapter, combining sort of this American lore of the samurai 
made public through, for example, author Mishima Yukio's suicide, Samurai Seppuku, in November 1970, which was globally reported in the media more as sort of uh, extremism than valorization of the samurai. Or Kurosawa films, which were showing in art house theater. And notably, John Belushi was sort of the showrunner for bringing Godzilla to American television. But Samurai Futaba is airing at the same time where American television networks are purchasing Japanese programs for two reasons, for two kinds of programs. Japanese programs are cheap. You could buy them, the, the yen is weak against the dollar. Um, for example, one kind of program are these animated cartoons like Astro Boy, which could be easily dubbed and fit into a landscape of Disney on American television. The other program, as you see pictured to the right, is Ultraman. These kind of programs that are popular because they make Japan look silly, full of these tokusatsu special effects programs. Concurrently, Samurai Futaba is airing at a time where Sony, Panasonic, these Japanese brands are making inroads into the American market by selling electronics that don't seem apparently Japanese. So my point on this, and I don't, I'm gonna move quickly because I don't want, I wanna save time for your questions. These parodies of Samurai are occurring when other Japanese products are being sanitized either to fit into the American market or to be silly, but samurai stick out as being apparently Japanese. Am I making sense? Let's react. Um, so in these four minutes skits, Samurai Futaba uh, plays um, a samurai who is living in New York City. In Kurosawa films, the samurai appears from the outside and helps the community. Samurai Futaba is part of New York City. He communicates with his customer, who's usually played by Buck Henry. And um, part of the humor is he constantly destroys um, things and, and slashes in samurai style. The Japanese language spoken is grunts and screams, um, as you see pictured in the blackboard in the top right and top left in samurai delicatessen. That's not real Japanese language. I saw Hashimoto sensei, O'Brien sensei in the audience. You know, this is not Japanese kanji characters. In the bottom right is um, a good example of a Samurai Futaba skit. This is one of my favorites. It's called Samurai Big Man on Campus. And in the skit, Samurai Futaba goes to Dean Burnham, and this is before Animal House, and he's failing out of school. And Dean Burnham says that, you know, how did you fail Asian studies? It's the easiest class on campus. All you need to do is find Asia on the map. So Samurai Futaba takes his katana sword and part of the humor is he's constantly slashing with his sword, slices Asia off the globe and hands it to the Dean and Dean changes his grade to an A. So again, you see this kind of humor go on and, and uh, Samurai Futaba is always threatening commit, to commit suicide his customer saves him. So um, my point in this is the samurai are not as destroying Japanese things, but they're sort of showing how their samurai is sort of like an American man just trying to get by. And he bonds with his customer because they're both trying to get by in um, America. And it sort of uses this idea of samurai um, toughness made popular through Jidaigeki or these kinds of samurai films that were popular in the 1970s. So um, to go on to the next example, quickly and you keep seeing like Shogun, I couldn't help compare. Has anyone seen Shogun from the 1980s? It was a classic and, and my colleague Henry Smith actually wrote a book about how to teach Shogun to university students because he was finding that his students were coming to Japanese history classes because they watched Shogun. But if you watch Shogun in the 1980s, it's different from streaming TV today. You had to stay home five nights in a row to see the whole thing. So you can see Shogun is, is what we call a mini series or, or this kind of television event. 
but it aired around the same time as Samurai Futaba also uses Japanese, but um, does so in, a, in another way of using the samurai stereotype here more earnestly showing the samurai as, as focused on battles and death and Japan being a land of the lost that Americans will never understand. But I bring this into the book to compare and understand these sort of portrayals of Japan as being this exotic land. But we see a turning point, I believe, in one of my favorite programs. Um, I am a lifelong Sesame Street fan. And in chapter three, I explore a pro Has anyone seen Big Bird in Japan from 1988, 1989? I show this in my UO classes, and it's a really charming way to bring in the, the students' nostalgia for Sesame Street but also introduce how American programs in the 1980s were looking at Japan differently than we look at Japan today. Big Bird in Japan was actually a co-production with Sesame Workshop and J Japanese public television, NHK. It has corporate sponsors like Japan Airlines, but um, it aired first Japan, uh, Big Bird in Japan aired first in Japan and it's based loosely on the 10th century Japanese tale Takeponi Monogatari or tale of the bamboo cutter which is about a young child who's found in a piece of bamboo, but the child's really a princess from the moon. But um, Big Bird in Japan is using like, those of you who are also Sesame Street fans know that Sesame Street is about 52 years old, 51 years old, and was created to um, spread ideas of compassion and multiculturalism. Sesame Street is not a language learning program. It'll have segments in American Sesame Street bringing in Spanish, for example. But in 1971, Sesame Street became the first American program imported in Japan to teach English. But those of you who watch Sesame Street know the English is really hard. It's New York City slang, it's spoken quickly. But seeing English spoken by foreigners was part of the sell of the program in Japan. But Sesame Street in America prided itself on multiculturalism. It was actually forbidden from being shown in Mississippi um, for a few months because of the multi-ethnic cast. Fortunately, this was overturned. But um, Sesame Street was slow to include representations of Asians or Asian Americans. And if you notice too, it was very, in the bottom slide, Abby Kadabi was the first, the Muppet in Pink was the first female Muppet to be a main Muppet on Sesame Street. But um, Sesame Street's also used a striking amount of parody celebrity sponsors, for example, Saturday Night Lifestyle having a celebrity host in order to appeal to adult viewers who watch with children. And Sesame Street was created in response to the violence of uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoons that we saw in chapter one. But Sesame Street's often engaged with Japan as part of its agenda of multiculturalism. And um, Big Bird in Japan was made at a time of extremely violent rhetoric against Japan called Japan bashing and violence against Asian Americans. To use a term from now Asian sort of hate against Japan. Um, in, for example, we see in this Newsweek cover, there's a fear that Japanese corporations are buying up American icons and properties. And the murder of Vincent Chin in 1983, Vincent Chin was murdered by workers at a Chrysler auto plant who mistook this Chinese American for being Japanese American. Um, but we see that Big Bird in Japan was created against this background. American students, if I tell my students that they were studying Japanese language in the 80s, they might be reading a very different kind of Japanese graphic novel or manga, those that promote Japan as a corporation. Or uh, reading Ezra Vogel's book on Japan as number one from 1979 about business lessons. The Japanese products coming to the US are sanitized for the American market in colors that look American. Welcome in is actually Japanese English. 
meaning to walk while you listen to something, this machine that came out in 1979 to make your music portable, but does not look Japanese. But against this background, Big Bird in Japan was only the second time that Sesame Street ever traveled abroad. The first time was their trip to China. And um, those of you who've been to Japan know that when you wanna make fun of someone who's overly punctual or values punctuality, you depict a bus guide. So Big Bird and Japan are on a bus tour of Japan. Uh, sorry, Big Bird and his uh, friend, the dog Barkley. And they're left behind by the bus tour guide because they're one minute late. And their mission is to get back to the airplane so that they can fly back to Sesame Street. At first, Big Bird's excited because he's very disappointed that the bus tour has been showing him modern skyscrapers. And he really, his dream is to see houses made out of paper and wood. His image of, Japan, image of Japan is very pastoral, even during the bubble economy era of the 1980s, when Japan is very corporate and modernizing. So they encounter Kagoya Hime, who's the heroine of the tale Taketoni Monogatari, or tale of the bamboo cutter, who's also trying to get back to the moon. And together, Big Bird Barkley and the princess travel together and uh, have adventures. And every Sesame Street program has a message, and this message is for children to be willing to have adventures and be willing and open to new things. So Big Bird achieves his dream of having a homestay experience in a house made out of paper and wood. But yet um, the viewers see Toyota cars, they see factories, but the focus is on Japan as pastoral, as classical, as non-threatening at a time when economic tensions are escalating with the United States. This is a coda, Sesame Street, as it had aired since 1971, was taken off Japanese television in 2004 and was replaced with a local Sesame Street that failed because viewers found the character voices annoying. Sesame Street Workshop didn't approve of the stories. But, um, and here are some of the Japanese Muppets. This is not Little Bird, this is Arthur and Pierre, the frog who do a manzai Japanese comedy duo. But Sesame Street couldn't compete with an array of Japanese television uh, children's program. But what's interesting to me, and this is a separate project, are the Sesame Street Muppets become commercial sponsors. Everything from donuts to Domino's pizza. And we don't have that kind of commercial sponsorship in the US of, of Sesame Street educational use. So just a few more things. Are, are any of you fans of animated sitcoms? I could react. My students, this is the cringeworthy part, part of the book that, um, Animated sitcoms had sort of stagnated for about 30 years since the Flintstones, but The Simpsons, which as we all know is set in Springfield, Oregon, brought back the animated sitcom. And since The Simpsons, King of the Hills, South Park, Futurama, all major animated sitcoms have had episodes dealing with Japan. Pictured here, The Simpsons family having seizures, watching, this is a parody of um, the, American, uh, the Japanese program, Pokemon that cause children to have seizures. But the Simpsons, I argue in chapter four, looking with uh, King of the Hill and South Park, all engage with Japan. They use Japanese language and the Simpsons tried to use Japanese language correctly. You notice here that there's some misspellings, um, but the Simpsons and all of these programs became programs, staples of Fox and, and other networks, Comedy Central, to appeal to a young adult audience primarily who had grown up in the 90s consuming more popular culture, including popular culture from Japan. 
And the programs engage with this, the discussions going on among these audiences, all levels of gags and twists and, and humor, bringing in different kinds of media, for example, Japanese popular culture, anime, manga. But um, notably, they all bring back memories of World War II at the same time, which these young adult audience would not have known. So at the same time as these programs are making Japan look cool, they're engaging with historical memories of Japan avenging World War II on Americans. And that's the theme of South Park. So um, as I mentioned, the audience for South Park was sort of an audience that also watched programs like Toonami, which is a network on American television that's starting to air Japanese anime. Sailor Moon aired uh, in uh, the 1990s. Pictured to the left is Pokemon, the animated cartoon from Japan. Um, in 1996. We've come a long way. This character um, is holding what's known in Japan as onigiri or, or rice balls. Um, in the American dubbed program, they call these jelly-filled donuts. And we can see how far that television and other media have trained our knowledge of Japanese food. But in my book, I analyzed through looking at example programs how these programs do a few things. One, they portray Japan as incomprehensibly different rather than comfortably familiar a depiction that also functions as a plot device to propel the narrative and unite the characters. And the characters of animated sitcoms are mostly sort of provincial Americans. They, they use the trope of the ugly American tourist. The second thing they do is they implement, they implicate historical memories, especially of World War II, the last war the United States won to affirm ideas of American dominance or hegemony. But they do this not, these programs are not meant to be educational. They're meant to make us laugh. But when we stop and we look at them, we can see that there's a lot going on with them and how they engage with Japan. So again, as I mentioned, starting with South Park, these programs all travel to Japan. And pictured at the bottom right, we see Homer Simpson doing something you're not allowed to do. And this is a program from 1999 when the Simpsons traveled to Japan. He is inside a sumo wrestling ring. Even women are not allowed to go inside the sumo ring. If women do, they throw purification salt to get away. The, the impurities that women add. But Homer Simpson ends up throwing the emperor into a box of sumo thongs or, um, and he's thrown in jail and he and Bart are served by geisha and they learn how to do uh, origami. But when they're set free, they speak Japanese. But my point in this is one, this is meant to make us laugh and the Simpsons always, they've gone to many other countries, Australia, Qatar, but they always return to Springfield, Oregon, unchanged by their experiences. So the program pokes fun at American provincialism. And this program, The Simpsons, The Simpsons aired in Japan, but it was not successful because it took a lot of cultural literacy to understand the jokes. But this episode of The Simpsons throwing the emperor was not allowed to be shown on Japanese television because you can't depict the emperor in popular culture in Japan. That's not allowed. Any questions so far? I'll keep going for about another 10 minutes and then we'll open this up to questions. I, I could talk about South Park, but I'll, I'll save these if you'd like to hear more, more questions. But I, if you look at this picture of King of the Hill, you notice that the banners in the airport say emperor. So these programs are using Japanese language just as decoration or, or in not always accurate ways, some ways that may be viewed as offensive. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but um, again, South Park does this really offensively, like in the episode Whale Horse um, depicts sort of Japanese brigades slaughtering whales and dolphins, even at the Miami Dolphins football game. 
because the picture of the plane that dropped the bomb, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima was shown to be piloted by a, a dolphin and a whale. So the South Park children need to go to the Hiroshima Peace Museum and meet with the prime minister of Japan to correct this. And they present a picture of the plane piloted by a chicken and a cow. So this humor shows that makes Japan's political figures seem laughable. Here's the emperor on South Park. And notably the creator of South Park was a Japan major. So we talk about this in my classes, different uses of your Japanese studies. My favorite chapter in the book is the one that makes my students cringe the most. Has anyone seen the um, Saturday Night Live skits, J-Pop America Fun Time Now? Maybe Kevin and Kumiko who are in the audience have seen these. These are skits that I'm not gonna give away the punchline. They'll make you cringe. And they're about fictional Michigan State University students who form a Japanese a program on their local, um, their university television network. Maybe Paul could relate to this for doing many programs on Oregon television. But in the case of these students, their faculty advisor who they call Sensei Mark, Mark Hoffman, needs to be on set during the television program. And the Sensei Mark is not happy about this because the, the, the students he believes are not presenting Japan accurately. And he calls them his loudest and worst students. But the students, the point of these skits, um, Saturday Night Live has poked fun at fans. Like there's the series of the, the Bears skits, the, the skits making fun of avid fans of the Chicago Bears football team. But in these skits, these four skits parody the global reach of Japanese popular, uh, the brand Cool Japan. Japan being promoted through government and corporate efforts by selling a mainstream popular culture, certain form of anime, manga, video games. So the um, programs parody student love for these popular culture at a time where American universities are including more and more popular culture classes in their curricula. And the professor's efforts to unteach the students. And that's a word used in the program. The professor worries that he's, the students are learning less from him instead of more that he's unteaching his students. So these students are also great ways to teach Japanese language because they make so many language mistakes. They add the honorific san to their own names. You're not supposed to do that. San is for other people. The background has miswritten Japanese words, but it also shows sort of the value of students not understanding nonverbal gestures, which are a big part of Japanese communication styles. So these programs are not meant to be pedagogy, but I use it as such because I find these programs being really instructive. Another thing that makes them really good for classrooms are they're only four minutes long. So it gives you lots of time for discussion. But they have famous guests that represent different kinds of Japanese fans, like Katy Perry plays the empress of the Hello Kitty Appreciation Club. And uh, uh, Jonah Hill plays Martin Blackfield, who's the endurance of the samurai stereotype. Jonah Hill's laughing so hard in the skit that he can barely say his own lines. Um, but again, the program, um, Mark, uh, Sensei Mark says, if there's such a thing as a loving version of racism, I think you have found it. And I think that hits this program on the head in what it's doing. And I'm not gonna give away the punchline, but the punchline of the last episode is very pedagogical and it's, it's a very good, um, and I, I a shout out to the uh, Saturday Night Live writers for this. But the program also shows, again, the posits a hierarchy of who has knowledge of Japan. Sensei Mark apparently has a PhD in Japanese studies from an American university, and his students have fan knowledge. Who is right? The students learn from Sensei Mark. Mark doesn't learn from his students. 
So I use this sort of as a lesson to me to take my students seriously and use their fan knowledge and help contextualize it, especially as we have more and more students entering Japanese language and culture classes due to a love of popular culture. So again, I'd be happy to bring back those ideas. This program, none of these programs are meant to be pedagogy, but I think when we look at television closely, we can understand a lot. So lastly, have any of you watched Marie Kondo's Netflix series? I think Marie Kondo is one is absolutely brilliant and I would love to have lunch with her someday. Marie Kondo in her Netflix program, she published a best-selling book in the 2010s called The, uh, the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And Marie Kondo, moved to LA in 2014 with her husband, who's the CEO of her corporation called Marion uh, Media. And Marie Kondo majored in, she went to a university that she learned how to speak English, but she has been brilliant about manipulating both American and Japanese stereotypes. In her American media, she draws out the stereotype of Japanese women or Yamato Nadeshko, the idealized Japanese woman. In her Japanese media, she draws out the stereotype of the effective, confident American woman. And she does this very well in her websites, but she became popularized in American television. Her name even became a verb in America to, to, to marry a condo something, to tidy up something and throw away things that do not spark joy. So she created a Netflix program that was actually spun off from a program she created for Japanese television. Um, in which she tidies up eight California families. By tidying up, Marie Kondo, do you all know Marie Kondo? Can you react or, or let me know if you don't, I could give you more background. Marie Kondo is not um, teaching us to be minimalist. Marie Kondo wants us to buy things, but she has created a, a cleaning method in which you separate things into six categories, starting with clothing and going on down to the things that are, have more memories for you. And by doing this, you don't just clean the kitchen one day and the garage the next, but when you sort things into categories, you could understand how to own things more mindfully and assess how your belongings reflect who you are. And this will better your relationships and, and how you interact with the world. I'm simplifying Marie Kondo's brand of mindfulness, but she also is influenced by Shinto and Shinto ideas, a Japanese religion philosophy on um, tidiness and cleanliness and knowing proper um, rituals and spaces. But Kondo became in 2019, the very first Japanese celebrity to become a household name in Japan by speaking Japanese on American television. This would not have been possible in the days of Hanna-Barbera cartoons, when we have Japanese stereotypes in the 1950s of exaggerated um, Japanese language slurs. But here you see Mary Kondo dressed in her quintessential white cardigan her interpreter, Ida Marie, and, and um, this is her name, the names are pronounced Marie. Um, Japanese is pronounced one syllable at a time, even though the American clients call them Marie. But they're both wearing cardigans because in Japanese business, I'd be very rude if I were giving this talk in Japan, I apologize for that, because you always cover in a business setting your shirt. And it would be awkward if Marie Kondo showed up in a business suit or if she were wearing an apron. Instead, she's wearing a white cardigan that shows both cleanliness and, and casual business attire. And she also covers her legs. But she, um, again, published a best-selling book and how she launched this book is she won a contest by a self-help company. 
to, who thought that she would be a good television personality. So from the start, she was cultivated as a television celebrity. Um, if they believed in Japan, but then she branched out into the Netflix market. And the Netflix actually, the, her program was going to be a scripted comedy show, but then they found that an unscripted, highly edited reality format would be the best for this program. But her book sold many copies, but then she became more popular through launching a website. And as you see on the bottom, her American website promotes sort of ideas of classical Japanese culture like Big Bird in Japan. But again, not minimalist, she wants us to buy things. But her Netflix program, she goes to Japanese households and they picked eight diverse California families. Notably, the gay couples are the ones that don't have children and the black family is the one living in the poorest department. Yes, these could reflect the realities of life in America, but you could also think that maybe the television program might be more aware of sort of perpetuating certain stereotypes. But the families are not supposed to represent California diversity, but they're supposed to show that marrying Kondo's methods benefit all. And here, as you see to the right, this is from Narie Kondo's uh, Japanese program called Tidy Up with Komari Explanation Point, in which she tidies up families in New York City. So in the episodes, the Japanese, the American clients say things like Marie Kondo is a tiny fairy godmother, a Japanese Mary Poppins. She's kept calling short, diminutive, perky. Marie Kondo is like me, she's only about four foot 11. But her Japanese-ness, her cuteness, make her customers feel, in a, um, they feel that she's this foreign presence. We talked about this in my classes with, would Marie Kondo be as successful if she yelled at people Gordon Ramsay style? Or if she seemed aloof like um, Martha Stewart, or if she, um, like various tropes, but instead she seems like a good teacher who will empathize with her students. So um, she uses these stereotypes in her program that's, and she has a new Netflix program that's based on her most recent book called Spark Joy at Work. And Spark Joy comes from the phrase tokimeki, um, which is an English translation. Mary Kondo is, speaks a very elegant Japanese, but she creates her own slogans and she copyrighted the phrase Spark Joy. She's absolutely brilliant. There's so much business knowledge that can be learned from Mary Kondo. But spark joy is the phrase that became popular through her Netflix program too. And she just had a fourth, uh, a third child, but in Japan, you always keep your family life separate from your public life. But in her, in her American media, she draws them together. And in her Japanese media, she's shown showing pride of her accomplishments. So lastly, the same year as this program aired on Netflix, also Queer Eye, a reboot of Queer Eye from the Straight Guy from the early 2000s, went to Japan in a, a four-part miniseries, not, not miniseries like Shogun where you have to stay home and watch it. You could, watch, you could binge all the episodes at once. But like Maria Kondo doesn't learn from her American clients, Queer Eye goes to Japan and these are five openly gay men with specialties. And they're bringing LGBTQ activism in their program very well in, in shaping, again, like Maria Kondo, they believe that if you tidy your, yourself, you can have more confidence and have a better life. So Queer Eye goes to Japan and they're trying to teach their Japanese clients who are people who feel marginalized, women who feel marginalized because they haven't conformed to patriarchal norms for women or gay men uh, who feel marginalized in various ways in Japanese society. The Queer Eye Fab Five are trying to teach their clients, their Japanese clients to be out loud and proud in a country that values being modest 
and and not being as open about um, your accomplishments and, and your beliefs and, and who you are. In one very uncomfortable episode, they're trying to get a mother to tell her daughter that openly that she loves her and the Japanese hosts are trying to explain that saying the word I love you in Japan is very different. I'm not trying to bash the queer I have five, but in bringing this up, I'm trying to show how Netflix curates a certain image of Japan and things of images of Japan in the American media being very good hearted and entertaining in this, but also being a little bit culturally tone deaf. So I could go on and on and talk your ear off about so many programs. Like, I don't know if any of you have seen Pink Lady and Jeff rated one of the worst television programs ever in American history in which the pop duo Pink Lady and Jeff Altman are on a television program together. It was canceled after four episodes, but you could find more online. They always end up in a hot tub together. But television is, an, is a way to bring sort of these issues into discussion. So lastly, my book brings Screaming Samurai, uh, anime clubs, tidiness experts, um, tourists together um, to argue that television parodies and the earnest programs that they have inspired. Marie Kondo would not have been popular, I argue, without this history of showing The Simpsons in Japan or engaging American audiences with views of Japan. But they present an alternative history of how Americans, mainstream Americans, have negotiated Japan's influence on American daily life. Television as a form of entertainment tends to comfort and amuse rather than offer suggestions and solutions to pressing um, social problems. In that way, they're depoliticized ideas. But, but yet by stopping and looking and analyzing these um, commercial and historical forces behind television images, much can be learned about nation identity and home. So my book is a call to action, if you will. I, I'd like viewers to take a look at, second look at their favorite television programs. Not only questioning the portraits of Japan, but television depictions of cultural and history more broadly. To watch television with a critical eye and to ask questions about what you see. So I've talked to you, just looked at about 74 slides. Um, I'm going to stop the slides now, if that's okay. And if you don't mind turning on your cameras, if that's okay. Um, and I'm going to stop the screen share. I hope that made sense. I've run through 50 years of American television in 30 minutes. Uh, thanks, Elisa. Incredibly interesting, really, really informative and in extremely thought provoking. Um, at this point, we'll, um, I want to welcome people to ask questions. Please use the chat function of, of Zoom and I'll read the questions to Elisa and she can answer them. And um, uh, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of questions. I wanted to know, um, when you first did this class, when you first started teaching your students, you, you've given us a little sense of the sort of trajectory in the class as you've gone through each of these uh, decades. And you said that, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live one was the one that made them cringe the most. Can you say a little bit about your sense of the trajectory that your students undergo during their, or they go through during the course of the class, where they wind up? What's your goal and, and do you think you've achieved it with them? Excellent question and thank you for that. And I'm actually hoping, and, and I could talk with you and my colleagues in, in uh, Japanese studies and, and EALL and Asian studies soon, but I'm hoping to build a class on uh, television for spring term 2022. But in class, how we do this, we approach things in various ways. My classes are arranged both chronologically and thematically. 
So I go through, one of the beauty of all of these television programs is that they're all short. So they're easy to be shown in class. And um, one of the problems, I don't know if any of you, many of you are teachers, you may have found this in your classes that inevitably when we teach culture, we have to bring illegal materials into our classrooms. I call this sort of fair use for educational purposes. Like I have to rely sometimes on, like I know some of our UL classrooms have firewalls where I can't show Netflix programs. So I have to negotiate the copyrights of being able to show an episode of Marie Kondo in my classes. That's, that's one hurdle. But how I bring students through this, um, we do this a few ways. Um, one of the challenges is that I have to provide context and I have to balance content and context. And I know many of you teach um, culture and, and have the same challenge. And, and I'd be happy, you know, I'd love to learn how you do this. Like, for example, when I teach those Saturday Night Live programs, they're a bit easier to teach because uh, many of the students who take my classes are already fans of Japanese culture. So they cringe because they see themselves in these stereotypes and they see me as the professor figure. When I teach the samurai, uh, for example, the judo jacks in the first chapter, I start by showing some of these offensive wartime propaganda cartoons and the students find these very uncomfortable to watch. And I'm glad that they find that discomfort. But as Ian knows, as a historian, you have to explain to the students the, the relationship between Japan and the US during the war. So that's a challenge. So I start by the programs themselves. I keep this, the television in the center and we watch a judo jack program, then we back up and we look at these factors and then we watch it again with that cultural knowledge. So that's just my teaching strategy to watch it twice. But I don't know if anyone has any other ideas. But yet it is challenging because it takes more than one class period. And it's, it's deceptively harder than it looks. Or maybe some of you can help me with this. I find this, I find it very complicated to teach um, popular culture because the students come in with a love of it. Not that I'm trying to be like Sensei Mark and unteach my students. I'm trying to use their fan knowledge to help them understand the social and cultural processes that underlie our, these images and how we consume them. And Paul, am I answering your question? I, I, I hope I Yes, am. you're answering it fine. It's, uh, thank you very much. Very helpful. So Ian is the next question. Ian's question is a complicated one. So give me a moment to read it to you. Thank you, Ian. I love your complicated questions. It's good to so see you. He is really excited to hear you mention in the introduction the role of discourse in your project. Could you dive a little deeper into how you chart discursive shifts? For example, such changes might be explored in abstract terms, this being a common but perhaps less rigorous use of discourse. On the other hand, you also mentioned semiotics. Uh, which makes Ian think you may be getting closer to the specific components that make up of uh, the makeup of various discourses and therefore might enable a deeper reading of a thicker description of the merging, rupture, or dissipation of various and often competing discursive currents. Thank you. I love that question, Ian. I, I feel like you set me up because this is a topic I've been wanting to talk about. Um, as one of my graduate students said to me, I, they wish, and, and Kumiko was, I think was in that class, they wish they had a dollar every time I mentioned the word Roland Bart, um, they would be able to afford a lot of coffee right now. Um, in the introduction of the book, I lay out what I call the semiotics of um, explicating the mythologies behind Japan on American television. And one of my academic heroes is Roland Barthes. Um, and I've been very strongly influenced by Barthes' semiotics, both of, of French culture and 
a book that I have, and Ian, you've, I'm sure you've read this, uh, a like dis, um, hate relationship or like dislike relationship called Empire of Signs, which was written in 19, thank you, 1966, based on Roland Barthes' visits to Japan, uh, two visits in the 1960s. And Kumiko did a, a wonderful explication of this book in, in one of the grad seminars. But um, I look at, for example, semiotics, and, and I was toying another word to kick into the mix, Ian, and, and I, I found that this word didn't fully apply. I was trying to look at discourses about middlebrow culture, a book that I admire by Christina Klein called Cold War Orientalism, and, and also Saeed's work on Orientalism as a major influence behind this project, of course. But um, uh, like Christina Klein and other scholars, I'm, I'm trying to look at Orientalism in the intersectionality of values, not just looking at negotiations of a, a totalizing East versus West, but to look at how factors of class, location within America, other factors construct American television. But thank you, and you set me up because my book is really, I, I'm trying to teach semiotics to students. I mean, that, I don't mean to sound elitist with that, but I think television is an entryway to understanding how when we look at an image, um, I found out I was doing more popular culture than middlebrow culture. Middlebrow meaning the media like Time magazines or, or educational television programs that are supposed to add a level of edification to middle-class viewers. But I'm looking at a lot of lowbrow cartoons. But popular culture, when we look at an image like, um, and, and Ian, since you're a historian, like looking at an image of a World War II stereotype on Japanese television, by using Roland Barthes and tools of semiotics, we can look behind that image and see how that image constructs a unified American viewership too, to perceive that image as Japan. So discursively, I back up and look at, for example, the Sony television uh, sets that are being imported into America at the same time that Japan's being over-racialized on American television. And how on one hand, the goods, like when you think about a Big Bird aired at a time where, you know, now we have, even now we have more Toyota cars on the street than anime programs being watched on television. So I look at how American consumers have been constructed to buy Japanese products in our normal landscape, but at the same time, our media that we consume of Japan over-racializes, over-essentializes. So I think discursive is essential that we don't just look at the television program, we have to put it in history. And Ian, you as a historian, I think your knowledge is valuable in this. Like you need to know the history to know popular culture. I wanted to also share that Ian uh, also recommends Foucault's 2017 book on Orientalism as well, or work on oh, Orientalism. I haven't read that yet. Thank you so much. I'll definitely check that out. So you mentioned um, in the talk that you, you want to have a collaborative relationship with your students because of their fan knowledge, but you also mentioned the kind of complex negotiations that such an effort entails in particular in relation to the Saturday Night Live parodies. Would you say a little bit more about how you how you manage that uh, give and take or that exchange or that collaboration with your students? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I'd love to hear and if some of you also teach popular culture. Um, the way I personally do it is I keep my students engaged. Like we start our, my class, for example, I teach a, a 100 level, an entry level course, and also I've done it at 300 level on um, globalization of Japanese popular culture. 
And I look at this more as a cultural studies approach rather than an anthropology approach. Like we don't look at, we look more at the text than at the people. And that's one way I found to make students more comfortable too. Like when I show the Saturday Night Live program, I'm not attacking the students as misguided fans. I'm looking at how the circulation of the Japanese popular culture that these students are consuming has made this program possible. So not attacking the students for being mis misinterpreting Japan, but looking at the materials that they're, they're engaging with and, and learning the histories behind them is one way to, to approach this. But how I engage the students, I have them bring in examples, which is how I discovered a lot of the television programs from this book. Like if you look, half of my footnotes are like, I thank this student for that television program. I thank this student for, for that other television program. So this book was a collaborative effort of students sharing their television memories. And how, how we look at this too is, is by listening to the students and not, I mean, a lot of the things that they say are not correct factually and otherwise, but using these programs as sort of a guide. So I guess how I engage the students is through a lot of what I call participation exercises where like in class one, I have them go around Oregon or UO or, or during the pandemic, something they find online that to them represents Japan or Japanese popular culture. And then we take their images and, and look behind them and using what Ian said through techniques learned through semiotics. How does the sushi from GSH uh, fresh, the eating hall on campus, reflect how we in Oregon consume ideas of Japanese food? And you say, I mean, every syllabus at the University of Oregon uh, has learning objectives on it. And I was wondering, just could you say what, do you have like a major learning objective that you want these students to take away from the courses that you're talking about? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you asked that because those learning objectives became the objectives of my book too. One, I'd like to provide a base knowledge of what's going on in the cultural exchange between America and Japan, like the content. I want the students to learn something about Japan, about home, about United States even. And I'm finding my own work, especially during the pandemic, has become much more cross-cultural in part because I can't get back to Japan. And I've been grounded in the texts that I can find. And, and this book, interestingly, and, and thanks to Kevin for this, that a lot of this book was done with materials that I could find at the UL libraries. Um, but how my learning objectives, another objective is I want the students to think critically. And I, I want them to think at how we consume news media, popular media. Another goal is for them to be able to express what they're seeing in writing and orally and to articulate their views. And I think by saying them, writing them, makes them remember them. Other learning objectives, again, to, 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 to understand how television is a lens through which to understand more difficult concepts like racism cultural essentialism, and um, to educate, to think, to cringe. Other learning goals, I know I have six of them on this, and I'm sort of uh, to blanking on, on, on all of them. But in fact, I Paula, in writing this book, that, that's what structured the introduction. And, and also my book proposal, I had to go back to my popular culture syllabi and say, okay, what am I doing in, in these efforts? So, and that's, I'm, I'm, that's how I begin a project. When I have an idea, I teach it. And, and, and as the graduate students know, last, last uh, winter I did a seminar in the 1950s and, and now we're, that's helping me with my other book and, and um, we're, we're expanding that project in other ways. 
So the next question is about this goal of making the students cringe and making the readers cringe. And one of the stories that you tell is about the US, about America and about American ideas. And also interestingly, how America gets represented in, alongside these representations of Japan. Would you say a little bit more about that aspect of what you've discovered of your findings? A shout out, the book was like, like all peer reviewed books was sent out to two reviewers and um, more power to, uh, this was a project that was sponsored through the Association for Asian Studies and Columbia University Press. And I'm really grateful for them for finding two different reviewers. And they gave me feedback in the two areas that I needed. One was a scholar of Japanese culture and the other was a scholar of American studies. And I had those two reviewer reports to work with. The scholar of Japanese studies was more closely aligned with my project and the scholar of American studies um, gave me some very good feedback about I'm, I'm not by training an American studies specialist I'm, I'm constant I live in Oregon and I'm the media that I'm bombarded with every day my own echo chamber of watching you know certain television programs I'm structuring my own viewing patterns in certain systems. So how I access the US part. Um, I, I, that was a lot of training for me because I, I'm not, and I don't purport to be uh, a, an American studies professor. I, I'm, and maybe if I had another second PhD, I could go back and do that. But um, what I'm really trying to look is cultural flows. So that was one of, this book seems deceptively simple, but it was really tricky to write. It was why I wrote it, um, I really wanted to, I mean, not to put my other women book aside, that's not the point. I found I was hitting up against the fact that I couldn't go back to Japan to do follow-up interviews. And writing the television book kept me laughing and grounded during the pandemic. I had energy that I, I wanted to put towards something happy. If you will, not all of this is happy, but something that would be a pleasurable academic writing experience. And, and I have been thinking about these issues through my syllabi for years. And also um, the United States part comes more um, through my reading of theory um, and critical texts on how um, America has negotiated certain international cultures, not just Japan, but but looking at looking rereading Said's Orientalism and even other seminal texts like Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities, or going back to theoretical basics I read as a graduate student and thinking about how these relationships are constructed through hegemony. So the US part was more anecdotal and experiential rather than based on, on my own personal academic training. But that was tricky. It's it's deceptively hard to balance two cultures. I don't know if any of you feel that way. Well, uh, Elisa, we, we're now just past one o'clock, come to the end of our time. Uh, we don't have any more questions. I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about your fascinating new book, Japan on American TV, Screaming Samurai, Join Anime Clubs in the Land of the Lost. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to hear from you about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Oregon Humanities Center. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, everyone, for your excellent questions and for coming. Thank you. I'm really grateful. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center or our upcoming sponsored events and our UO Today interview show, 
or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for uh, joining us.